It is so great to be here. Uh, it's such an honor to be here. And I remember the first time I got to speak on this stage, it was my BTH sermon. I was so nervous. I think I preached for like 18 minutes, um, scared to death. And uh, I, I was so nervous then, and I feel that same way now because uh, I have such love and admiration for this school. Um, over my uh, 20 plus years in ministry, I have got to work with a lot of students from a lot of different Christian colleges, and I can consistently say, Ozark is the best. And uh, the reason I say that, <laughs> I say that not just because of the two national championships, Michael, but also... Um, uh, but also because I just love the quality of kids that come out of here and just the work that is done around the world by the students of Ozark. And I just had such great memories of being here. Uh, I spent five years here because it was a five-year degree. And while being here, uh, I met my wife here. I de- developed great friendships here that I still have to this day. I deepened my faith. I almost got arrested a couple times. You know, typical stuff uh, that happens on a college campus, but uh, God was kind. And uh, I was able to graduate from here, and then I took a job in Lexington, Kentucky, at a church called Southland Christian Church. I worked there for nine years. And then, uh, almost 15 years ago, I moved out to California to take over a church called Real Life Church, uh, which was planted by Ozark's very own Kyle Eidelman. And to follow him was just a real treat and a treasure, and uh, to be able to be there for 15 years, and to see the steady stream of Ozark interns that have come in and blessed our community, it's just a thrill. So to be here and to say thank you to you, and thank you for keeping Ozark as great as it is, is just a gift to me. Uh, When I first moved out to California, um, it was a little bit of culture shock, because I'm from Kansas, and then you know went to school in Missouri, and then worked in Kentucky, and so <clears throat> going to you know California, I had to actually start wearing shoes, you know, and it was just kind of a weird deal. Um, but you know, blending in with the California community, it, it's just a little bit difficult. And I had picked up the word y'all while I was in Kentucky, so I had to drop that. And when you get there, uh, uh, you, you just want to you want to build friends, right? And so I'm in this brand new church. I mean, we're a couple years old. We're still meeting in a movie theater. And my mission when I got there was to build friendships with neighbors so that they might come to church, right? And so my family and I, it was just me and my wife, we have one daughter at the time, she's about nine months old. We moved into this community that had a community pool. And we thought this will be great because we can all hang out by the pool together, I'll get to know people in the community, we'll invite them to church. This is awesome. It is God-ordained, all right? And I'm not a Calvinist, but it was God-ordained. but anyway, so I, I, I moved into this with, with high hopes as to what was going to happen. And I realized I, I hadn't you know, been swimming in some time. So I thought, I got to go get a, you know, a bathing suit. And so I go to the mall. And when you go to the mall to get a bathing suit in June uh, in California, they're all gone. I mean, they already bought those over Christmas, right? So I, I got to go find a bathing suit. And I find one bathing suit in one store, and it's bright orange. Like working on the highway, orange. And I thought, whatever, I gotta get it. So I got that thing, and we got suited up one Saturday morning, and, and we got our daughter all geared up and everything, and had the little floaty for her, a little inner tube, and, and we, we loaded up the stroller, we walked down to the community pool, and people are beginning to come out and gather around there, and, and I'm talking to people and everything, and then I get in the water, you know, I'm kind of swimming around with my daughter, you know, and we're splashing each other and everything, and, and I hand her over to my wife, and I, I get out of the pool, and then I'm walking around talking to people, introducing myself, you know, and all that. Then I get back in the water. I'm sitting on the steps next to my wife and and she looks over at me and she says, Rusty, what is all over your suit? 
I said, what are you talking about? And I looked down, and apparently this suit that I purchased is one of those that is orange until it gets wet. And then certain images appear all over the suit. Friends, I wish I could tell you it was crosses or doves or occ.edu or something like that. But no, it was topless women. That's right. That's right. How y'all doing? New pastor in town. Real life church, you know. Clothing is optional. Man. That was humiliating, you know. So we, we creep out of the pool. I put a towel around myself real quick. I, I claim I'm from some other church, you know, and I leave and never go back there again, right? What I've discovered over 20 plus years in ministry is that coming out of, out of Bible college and into ministry, we often wear something that we, we were a little surprised by. Hopefully it's not, you know, porno suits, but, <laughs> but it is something we didn't really see, you know, uh, approaching. It's not something that we anticipated. And it's often something we carry with us through college into ministry, thinking it will go away. For some of us, it might be an issue of shame as a sin in our past that we've never really dealt with. For some of us, it might be an issue of guilt, a sin that we've never confessed. For some of us, it might be an issue of pride, where we have wrestled with this and wrestled with this, but we've never finally conquered it, and it carries with us into ministry. But I want to talk to you about one thing today that haunts all of us. And we struggle with it in college. And if you are not careful, you will take it out into ministry and you will struggle with it the rest of your life. And for some of us, it's going to be that thing that keeps reoccurring. We have to constantly put to death. And that is this four little word called envy. Now, I don't know how old you were when you first discovered that you struggled with envy. But for me, I was in sixth grade. It was Christmas break. For Christmas morning, I opened up one of my gifts, and it was a sweater. Now, typically, kids don't like to get clothes for Christmas, but I was in sixth grade, so I was concerned about what I looked like, impressing the ladies, and this particular sweater was bright fluorescent green. It was the 80s. You could pull that off. And on the front of the sweater was a little alligator. It was an IZOD. I'd never owned an IZOD before. This was huge. I didn't know what my parents did to be able to buy this IZOD. I didn't care. I was so glad to have an IZOD sweater. And I could not wait to roll into school as soon as Christmas break was over and show off my IZOD sweater. I knew girls would drop books and come running. I just knew it. (laughs) And so sure enough, I walked into school that day just putting out the vibe because I got the IZOD sweater on and everything is good and everything's going according to plan until the door opens up at the other end of the hallway and in walks... I still remember his name, Greg Williams. Greg walks in the room and he's got a new sweater as well. But what's it got on it? A polo. Polo outranks the IZOD. And everybody stopped and stared at Greg. Oh, Greg, look at your sweater. That's so cool. You're so cool, Greg. Greg, 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 Greg. You know, I just, I'm almost over it. I'm working with a therapist, but uh, I I do know where he lives. Anyway, I... In, in that moment, you know, I'm feeling this pain of, 
man, what has Greg got? I don't have. And it's this frustration of, I was good with what I had until I saw what someone else had. In fact, take a look at this quote from Craig Rochelle. He says, the fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. And that is so true with what we do. The fastest way to kill something special is to compare it to something else. Think about how that we do that with each other. Think about when you come back on campus after Christmas break and you got a different car. It's not a brand new car, but it's a different car. It's new to you and it's a Corolla and you love it. And you roll up into the parking lot until a person in your dorm rolls up in a Camry. And then you're like, oh, well, sure, showing off. That's fine. Isn't that nice? I mean, you're fine until you go on social media. And then you look at, you know, at, at Instagram and you begin to see that everybody's at the mall, but you... And you're wondering, why wasn't I invited? You were having a pretty good day until you see that. One day you sit down and you decide to compose a tweet that is just so epic it would make Tozier cry, right? And and you send that thing out and nobody likes it. I mean, one person, Doug Welch, he liked it, but... But, I mean, that's that's not the same as Dr. Welch liking it. I mean, that's a whole other level... Twenty bucks. All right. (laughs) But don't we compare those things? How many likes did I get? Who liked it? You know? You might be good because you're gonna go to coffee with Ackerman, right? That's gonna be good. But then your buddy, he's gonna go to dinner with the Fazio. Oh man, you know? What do you do there? You got us weekend ministry. You got a weekend ministry, and, and it's Friday to Sunday night, and it's a long stretch. But you know what? You do it because you love it and you're honored to do it. And they only pay you a hundred bucks, but you know what? It's okay. Until your roommate gets a job to go preach a 30 minute message at a church 30 minutes away and they pay him $200. And you think, oh, wait a second. What you had before was good until you compared it to something else. And friends, can I just tell you something? You don't grow out of this when you get out of Bible college. It only gets worse. In fact, take a look at what the Apostle Paul says about this kind of mentality. He says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. But they are only comparing themselves with each other. Using themselves as the standard of measurement. You see, what he's saying there is, is when we compare ourselves to each other, we're valuing their worth and valuing our worth as comparable and judging ourselves based upon how others judge them or how we judge them. And Paul says, how ignorant. Here's what happens when you and I compare ourselves to other people and struggle with envy. One of two things. We either feel superior about ourselves or we feel inferior about ourselves and neither glorify God. You think about it. Some of us will look at each other. We'll look at other pastors. We'll look at social media. We'll see what people are doing. And we will think superior thoughts about ourselves. We'll think, well, I know what kind of student they really are. I know what their character is in the dorm. Or I know why they're failing. It's because of their personal life. And you feel a little better about yourself than someone else. And you feel a little bit more blessed than someone else. And maybe for some of us, we don't feel superior, we feel inferior. 
We start looking at everybody else and we start thinking, why can't I have that? God, why don't you love me as much as them? Why haven't you blessed me as much as them? As Pastor Andy Stanley says, we all want to live in the land of Ur. Rich Ur, fast Ur, pretty Ur. And then after living there for a while, we want to move to the land of Est. Rich Est, fast Est, pretty Est, retweeted Est. Because we want everybody to know who we are and we just need it to be more than somebody else. And neither one of those ideas honor and glorify God. You see, the struggle with this that we have is that when we are constantly comparing ourselves to one another, it takes our eyes off what we're supposed to do. And it diminishes the way we see God looking at us. Now, I I didn't really see this early on in my ministry, but uh, I quoted before Pastor Craig Rochelle. I heard a message he did years ago where he kind of pointed out something about Peter and John I never thought about before. And we would assume that these guys were the closest of friends, but when you read and how they interacted with each other, they, they may have had a little bit of a comparison issue with each other. Because these guys are constantly kind of jockeying for position. Who's going to get to sit next to Jesus? Oh, look at me. I'm by Jesus. Uh, you know, and then, who's going to be uh, by him, you know, uh, on his throne? And who's the greatest and all those kind of things? In fact, Peter might have thought John was a little bit annoying because he always referred to himself in third person. Those people are annoying, you know. And then, then when, when John does refer to himself, he refers to himself as what? The one Jesus loved, which we think is sweet, but it could just be, hey, Peter, I'm the one Jesus loved, you know. <laughs> which is a little bit like Moses writing the Old Testament, saying Moses was the most humble man alive. Just kind of a weird thing to think about, you know? That's funny, I don't care who you are. All right, so let me give you the context for what we're going to read here, because I think this is so powerful for all of us that wrestle with envy, and that's all of us. The context is Jesus has been crucified, and Jesus has resurrected, but nobody knows it yet. And that's where we pick up in John's Gospel, and what John tells us happens, and that's key. John is writing this. John 20, verse 1, early in the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. And so she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple. Who's that one? Oh, yeah, that's right. The one Jesus loved. And said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. So John's telling us, here's what's happened. Mary comes to tell us she's in hysterics where he can't calm her down. Peter's there, and also I'm there, the one Jesus loved. So Peter, this is great. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. I mean, how much of a guy is this? All right. I mean, yeah, Jesus rose from the dead, but I'm faster than Peter. Let's get that recorded for all time. Finally... The other disciple, who, by the way, had reached the tomb first, also went inside. Now, you fast forward a little bit, and they've discovered that Jesus has risen. They've now seen him, and days later, they're out fishing in a boat. And I think they're just trying to figure out, what do we do with all this? Think about all the things that have happened over the last couple weeks. And here they are in the boat, and John picks up the story again in John 21. Then... The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. Here they are in the boat, and they look out there on the shore, and they see him. And John wants us to know, I saw him first. It is the Lord. 
And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say that, he wrapped his his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and he jumped into the water. And he starts swimming to shore. And we know the rest of the story, right? Why does Peter want to get there so quick? Because he has unfinished business with Jesus. He knows the last words that Jesus heard him say were three denials. And he's got to make it right with Jesus. And after this moment, while all the disciples are drying out and having breakfast there on the beach, Jesus and Peter go for a walk. And while they're walking, this great interchange happens of conversation between the two of them, where Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? Not once, not twice, but the same number of times he was denied. And Peter knows it. It's Jesus' way of bringing grace and truth. And Peter is convicted about this. And he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus recommissions him to the first commission he ever gave to Peter. You're going to be the rock on which I build the church. Now you go and launch this movement. You feed my sheep. And right there it would be perfect. But look what happens next. Peter turned and saw that the disciple Jesus loved was following them. Isn't that just like a rival? You're having a great moment and he's following along behind you to see what's going on. And look what he says. Peter saw him and he asked, Lord, what about him? I mean, I get, I get to be the rock. That's cool. Uh, long before Dwayne Johnson. I get to be, I get to be, you know, the, the feeder of the, the sheep. I get to take care of the sheep. That's cool. What's he going to do? In other words, is it going to be better than my job or less than? Will I get to lord over him or will he lord over me? And what Jesus says next has the power to break envy for every single one of us. Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. What is that to you? When you look around at other students... And they're being blessed in ways that you think you deserve. What is that to you? When you look at other ministries and you see them succeeding, and the first thing you want to say is, they must be watering it down. What is that to you? When you look at other people and they're having dates and they're getting married and everything's going great for them. You know what? You're at home studying, watching TV, whatever. What is that to you? You must follow me. See, here's the sad thing, and this is what I wish I had had ears to hear when I was your age. This comparison game does not stop when you walk out of here. And I'll tell you what, this is something I've wrestled with, not just with Greg Williams in a sweater, but with other pastors as well. And you know where I've struggled with it the most? I've struggled with it with my predecessor at Real Life Church. The great Kyle Eidelman, who planted Real Life Church. An amazing communicator, a charismatic leader, an incredible individual, 
a friend of mine. And yet when I first moved to real life church, I quickly started getting compared to him. Hey, you're pretty good, but have you seen Kyle lately? Have you talked to Kyle? Is Kyle coming back to speak sometime? We love Kyle. Kyle was so good looking. I'm trying. I'm doing the best I can, you know. I'd have people talk to me about Kyle, 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 all the great things Kyle did. All the, remember that, that sermon Kyle did? Oh, Kyle was so fantastic. And, and just constantly, Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. And at some point I'm like, would you all shut up about Kyle? But in my mind, it was just stirring. You know, it was just this painful thing. Because I started comparing myself to Kyle. And every time Kyle put out a new book or put out a new video series and somebody would come up and go, you read Kyle's new book? No. You shouldn't either. It's heresy. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I remember we're meeting in the movie theater, and Kyle's videos had just come out, and they're awesome. And we're doing church in the theater, and somebody comes up and says, you know what we ought to do in the other theater, just so more people can come? We ought to show Kyle's videos in there. We're not doing that, okay? And that was my wife. You know, and I'm thinking, <laughs> I'm kidding. But it was constant, Kyle, Kyle, Kyle. And so, you know, after a while, it really starts to mess with your head, you know? And so I just really started to get, you know, kind of envious and jealous and angry about somebody I would consider to be a friend. Fast forward a couple years, and I'm still wrestling with this, and I go away to this, uh, this thing called Blessing Ranch, which is just an unbelievable resource for pastors. And they let pastors and their spouses come out there and just hang out for a week and they provide, you know, counseling and just downtime. And there's about eight couples of us there. And we don't really interact at all until the end of the day when we have dinner together and we sit around this big table. And we're sitting there having dinner and I'm getting to know the family across from us. And he's a pastor out of Minnesota and we're talking. He says, where are you from? And I said, Valencia, California. And he said, Valencia, isn't that where Kyle Eidelman's church is? I said, well, yes, it is. And that's why I'm here. Thank you very much. All right. (laughs) And it just kept going and it kept going. And something happened to me a couple years ago where I just sensed God saying to me, what is that to you? What is that to you? If I use him in one way and use and use you in another way, you are to follow me. And the quicker you and I can stop looking around at everybody else, looking at everybody on social media, judging our worth based upon what other people say or don't say, basing our worth on the amount of blessings or the lack thereof, judging our worth based upon the amount of people that show up or don't, but simply follow after Jesus and simply feed his sheep the way we're supposed to do it. What is that to you if somebody else does something that you don't. In fact, I think for a lot of us, we are living for the approval of somebody who will never give it to us. Maybe it's your maybe it's your mom, maybe it's your dad. Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend dumped you years ago. Maybe it's a professor that never gave you an A. Maybe it's a, a, a pastor at your church that seemed to love everybody else in the youth ministry but you. And when you get out of here, there's going to be somebody else always lurking that you think, I need their approval. And you don't. The only approval you need is that of Jesus. What is that to you if he chooses to use somebody else in a different way? When I think about this idea of fixing our eyes on Jesus, 
I can't help but go to Hebrews. And Hebrews says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. And let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Not Kyle. Not your roommate. Not your professor who you admire and love. But on Jesus the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Can I just give you one phrase I hope you keep with you the rest of your life, and I'm trying to live it out every single day. We're all in a race, but it is not against each other. It is a race towards Jesus. So stay in your lane we're all watching the olympics right now we know that in any kind of competition the quickest way to lose is look to the left or to the right stay in your lane if god wants to raise somebody up good for them you stay in your lane if god wants to raise you up fantastic stay in your lane in fact what i've learned with this whole power of envy in my life there's a few things that really kind of break that spell The first one is take a break from social media once in a while. You'll freak out for the first 24 hours. Your thumbs won't know what to do. You'll get the shakes and the whole deal. I'm telling you, shut it down for about three days. A social media fast. And when you come back and look at some of the posts, you'll think, how ridiculous that I let that dictate my mood. Here's another thing. Be grateful. Start a gratitude journal where you just write down all the things God has done for you instead of always looking around at what God has done for someone else. Have you noticed it's really easy to notice what God has done for somebody else but not for yourself? Write that list of what he's done for you much longer than what you need from him. And then finally, celebrate the wins of those you struggle with. You be the first person to like that picture. You be the first person to post a comment that's positive. And with Kyle, what I decided to do was every time that he wrote a book, I went out and bought it. I read it, and I wrote him an email and said, great book. I hope you sell dozens. I mean, just... (laughs) I'm still working on it, friends, all right? Still working. But I want to celebrate him, and I want to celebrate anybody else. Because I know my mission is not to be someone else. My mission is to be me, and my mission is to stay in my lane. So what are we going to do? Future of the church. When other people's ministry goes a certain way and yours doesn't, what are you going to do? You're going to stay in your lane. When somebody else gets a date and you don't, what are you going to do? You're going to stay in your lane. Somebody else gets a ring by spring, what are you going to do? You're going to pray for them, all right? And you're going to stay in your lane. Somebody else has a ministry that takes off far greater than yours numerically. You're going to stay in your lane. And one day we will reach the end. And we will find the author and perfecter of our faith. Who will say, great job, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you're a God of love and of grace and of mercy. 
And even in all of our ridiculous envy and comparison and greed and jealousy, you still love us. You still have a plan for us. God, I pray your deepest and richest blessing of contentment on every student at this college, of being content in who they are, in their own skin, with their own gifts, in their own area of ministry, to do what it is you've called them to do, where it is, and for that season. God, it is so easy for us to start comparing ourselves to each other and thus thinking that our disappointment in ourselves is your disappointment in us. May we see your joy in us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.